Hey everyone, this is Patrick with the 307 RPG Podcast, and I just want to take a moment and say thank you to all of our amazing patrons. It's because of you that we're able to do the things that we do. If you like our show and you want to support us, you can find us on patreon.com slash theforgeherald. Thanks everyone, I hope you enjoy the show. Hello everybody, and welcome to the 307 RPG Podcast. My name is Patrick, and I'm your host, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts. I'm Nolan. And I'm Cody. Guys, it's a topsy-turvy world. Hopefully you're staying safe. Hopefully you have some fun stuff to tell us about today. Uh, yeah, we got a chance to test some more time with D20 uh, with our uh, vampire game. And again, I will say that it is, it's neat seeing the maps. Uh, I think it's a fun way to incorporate it in the game. Um, as we learn more, adding the music and that kind of stuff really helps set the tone. Uh, adding pictures through, you know, like Discord, the way we're doing it, so you can kind of see what the places uh, I think is really fun as well. Um, but I still miss playing in front of our friends. I agree. Cody, I know your your time in Roll20 was really short because your kids started kicking the shit out of each other. <laughs> um, what did you think of this a little bit you got to spend in there checking it out? Uh, I enjoyed Roll20. Um, it, you know, it took a minute to get everything wrapped around in my head and get everything adjusted on the screen how I wanted. But like Nolan said, it's nice to see maps and be able to move things. And uh, the ambiance you got to add in with the, the sounds and stuff was nice. Um, but of course, like Nolan said, it, it's awesome, especially right now. It, it doesn't beat sitting around a table for me, though, personally. Yeah, and I will echo your thoughts there. Uh, some of the things that I like about Roll20 is it does give you, I mean, it's pretty much the same thing you guys have mentioned. I do like the idea of having maps, um, using the tokens to indicate who's who, allowing you guys to control those tokens. Some things that I think people need to keep in mind, especially as you're playing a game online, you know, I know there's been times where we've sat down to play and I'm not the most prepared. And I feel like sometimes I have to wing it and I do my best to, you know, make us where you guys don't notice that. When it comes to using Roll20 or even playing online in general, you really need to have your shit together because you got everybody doing all sorts of stuff. And when you can't see each other, you don't know who got up and walked away, who, who did what. And you need to be able to make sure that as, especially as the DM, that you are keeping track of things that you're watching, you know, the, the movement on the screen. Um, and even then the pre-work that you have to do by setting up, if you're going to use roll 20 by setting up those maps. I mean, I tried to make sure that I had the succubus club completely mapped out for you guys. So you could see it and including throwing in a bunch of people just to set that tone. So I do, I do like roll 20. It does take more work to make sure that everything looks good. And I'd be curious to see what it's like to play a, an adventure as well. Um, I know that they do Adventure League is set up through it. Um, and having those maps and having those resources all done um, would be neat maybe as a one shot one time just to see the the full potential, I guess, of Roll20 and realize like, oh, man, we are not using this as well or, you know, seeing some of that stuff as well. Because I know like when we did the Scarred Lads game, you were able to pull in some of your own images for the monsters and that kind of stuff. So I think just scratching the surface of it, um, you know, I think there's a lot of potential. But yeah, definitely more work, more patience i think uh and i can see why people build their gaming tables now to have the big monitor there in the middle so you can just move your characters around the map that's pretty cool i completely agree um and i do like the idea of being able to pull in especially when it comes to scarred lands because you're not going to have tokens for things like a gloom womb which is disgusting looking but i was able to find a picture on the internet and bring that in and put it into the game for you guys to see i do think that helped i also like the idea of being able to hide the map the fog of war lighting um and and like there was a situation in our, in our scarred lands game where one of the characters threw smoke bombs and we were able to obscure the map and make it so where people could not see what was underneath it and i thought those were really helpful uh tools to use yeah i liked it with uh, the fog of war it was really neat just again playing a character with dark vision and then seeing just seeing how far you can or can't see in a dungeon um you know usually i do a fairly good job being able to kind of envision the story um but when you actually see it on a map you kind of like man you really don't get to see as far as you think you would do 
Very, very true. And I think it's interesting because you can with roll 20, like Nolan's saying, is you can set that your your range. So the DM can go in with each character and set the range of which the fog of war will open up. And the fog of war is what obscures the map for the players. The DM can see it, but the players can't. So as the players move through, if you set the distance appropriately, it expands the map so they can see that area. And like I was playing around with um both Nolan and uh, our player Zach's character. Zach's fog of war was only 10 feet where Nolan's was 30. And it was amazing. Like if you put Nolan just a little too far ahead of Zach, Zach wouldn't even be able to see him. And it was, it was really evident in seeing that dynamic lighting in, in roll 20. Okay. So yeah, roll 20, I think is an interesting tool. It is definitely something we can continue to use during this time period. There are other things like astral tabletop. I have looked briefly into that. Not a whole lot. Uh, Nolan did mention that, you know, adventure league is kind of tied in with roll 20. I think they do the same with astral. I've actually considered purchasing, um, Curse of Strahd through Roll20 and bringing in all those maps, I keep saying I re- I want to rerun Curse of Strahd with a different group and give people a chance to really experience it. And maybe maybe that'll be the one that I try out and bring in those maps, Nolan. That'd be pretty neat. Well, and I know you had, we had mentioned, you know, coming up with April uh, here, very close. Uh, maybe checking out that uh, Wild Mount one-shot, and it looks like they did a free conversion uh, or a free module of it for Roll20. Oh, I didn't see that. I will definitely look into that and see if I can find that because that would be a great way to experience it as well. Yeah, especially when it's free. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly my point. <laughs> but speaking we'll, we'll of... take it. Exactly. But speaking of a free adventure for Wildmount, let's talk about D&D news because as we were reading on D&D Beyond, there is a free adventure being offered that takes place in the wilds of Wildmount. This is a one-shot designed for four to five players of seventh level, which is kind of fun. And it'll take, they say, roughly one to two sessions to complete. I'm not sure exactly how long of a session they're thinking it is. I have a link in the show notes. Have either of you been able to take a look at this little adventure? I have not, just because uh, you had mentioned what we might play it. I did read the intro to it, um, and I know it did spark a lot of discussion. Um, what? Uh, and you guys all have to help me. I know that they were there was a time period in three point five where they called it E six, and where you quit leveling up after sixth level, and so that was kind of this conversation that started. Is like seven's a really solid level. Um, could you make that? You know, could it be you know fifth edition E seven where we just stop leveling up there and then kind of a it, it tangent into well is eleven technically the new twenty is nine the better thing you know is fifth level with third level spells but anyway yeah it was it, it sparked a neat conversation but I think seven is a good one you know you kind of get that second class defining thing uh, rogues get their evasion monks get their evasion uh, fourth level spells start to pop up. Uh, seven's kind of your start into that power level where I don't feel like maybe you're obliterating all the monsters um, and you're not having, you know, I think goblins and orcs are still sort of relevant at that point. Now, granted, you can scale them up and all that there, but I think it's it's kind of that, that honeypot where you can throw a couple extra goblins and it's instantly challenging versus a walk in the park. Yeah, seventh is an amazing, like, it's a great level, like you said. I think it's, my my only issue with with the one shot starting at seventh level and, and the three of us have all seen this where you start a character that is higher level you don't have the experience of playing up to that level so you're not 100 sure what your character can do um, unless you're an experienced player and even then sometimes like if you you may be an experienced player but have never played a, a mage or wizard and suddenly you're given a seventh level wizard and you have all these spells to keep track of and things like that um I think I agree with both of you that seventh level is a great turning point in your character. That's really where you start to see things scale up. I do think seventh level might be difficult to start at unless you are, unless you take a moment to really go over the, uh, the character sheet with your DM and just kind of try to flesh it out. Maybe a good session zero would be helpful here. And I think you look at, at this point now, you know, fifth edition is several years old. And I think that might be something that we overlook a lot when we look at it. I agree. I do think, though, that there's still so many new people coming to Dungeons and Dragons. I mean, I'm meeting people, I won't say all the time, but at least often enough here in our little town that it makes me go, huh. You know, there's there's a lot of new people coming to it that that haven't had a chance to play, that want to play, that, you know, I think saying, hey, new person, here's a seventh level character. Good luck. <laughs> Might be a little challenging. Moving on, though, um, 
there is a new Unearth Arcana, and these have been pretty quiet, you know, the last couple of weeks, but this one just came out. So it's exciting to see some new content for Dungeons and Dragons. And this one is all about spells and magical tattoos. Nolan, what can you tell us about it? It looks like they are, they gave a couple more options kind of, uh, so it's not like all third levels kind of when that, or third level spells is that power like that's when you know fireball happens so they added a couple things they added a nice dot with acid stream um which we haven't really seen a lot of those uh kind of wash over and continue to burn people um they added a, a newer kind of combat monk-ish style attack ability they added a very neat spell called spirit shroud which makes me want to play a, a sorlock even more which is kind of like an upgrade to hex so you're not just casting that same spell over and over for your whole life um and then i would say the big takeaway on this here would be it looks like they're redoing or maybe trying to update how summons work We've seen it a couple times now in our games with uh, summon spells where it's like, well, what do I get? How many do I get? I need a CR1, a CR8, a CR this. Um, and now it, I don't know if they'll go forward with it, if they're going to do a 5.5 edition, if they're testing stuff for 6E with this. But it's now one of those things of I summon this. Then it's either like a celestial spirit, a bestial spirit, and it gives it its stat block which I thought was really neat. Uh, and instead of being like, well, hey, I summon two bears and while well, you're ninth level and two bears get one shot. Now it's, uh, you know, say I summon a bestial spirit. My armor class is 11 plus the level of the spell for natural armor. So that way it scales with you as you upcast it. Uh, the hit points equal the beast constitution modifier plus your spell casting ability modifier plus 10 times the spell level. So you got to do a little bit of math, but at least you're not looking for 1d8 fate you know, nymphs and trying to keep track of that stuff. Um, and then uh, it gets multi-attacks equal to, uh, number, number of attacks equal to half the spells level rounded down. So every single one of these things are a nice, scalable, uh, easy conversion where you can kind of keep it going. Having elemental spirits, celestial spirits that come in with, uh, you know, either mace or a bow, just depending on how you choose to summon it. Having a scaling beast, so that way it's like every time you summon something, maybe it's not a menagerie, you keep summoning back the same spirit animal, which I could see uh, Beastmaster Hunters really enjoying. So it, I'm hoping this is the way they're going with uh, summoning going forward. Uh, it'd be a lot easier for newer players to grasp. Um, it's, it's real simple. What levels a spell? Okay, here's a couple of modifiers that you need to pop in since it's third level. I imagine this stuff plugging with D&D Beyond being super simple as well. Uh, so that stuff would all be very nice. Uh, magical tattoos. We've gotten to play a little bit with Scarred Lance and seeing them come uh, into fifth edition. I know that they used to be very prevalent in 3.5. Uh, and so some of them are really, really good. Some of them are really, really legendary, which is fun to see. Something like the ability to have a barrier tattoo, which depending on the rarity can give you basically a tattoo that gives you plate mail or at least a base AC of 18 on your wizard. Seems like something that most would go after. There's a Eldritch Claw tattoo, which kind of helps uh, maybe a battle master be a monk, which was really neat. Blood Fury tattoo was probably the one that stood out almost the most to me besides a plate mail tattoo. Uh, kind of turns you into a champion fighter. Your attacks score a critical hit on a, a d20 roll of 19 or 20. When you score a critical hit against a creature, that target takes an extra 4d6 necrotic damage and you gain a number of temporary hit points equal to the necrotic damage dealt. Now, yes, this is a legendary tattoo. I could see it on a champion fighter being its own healer. Uh, or at least keeping its own little temporal shield up of temporary hit points. So yeah, some of them seemed really neat. It seems like something to go after. Um, they do require attunement, so you couldn't just stack somebody all tattooed from head to toe, which I really like. And then it is a, the magic is in the needle, which is really cool. So when you attune to the item, you hold the needle in the against your skin where you want the tattoo. The needle then uh, basically dissolves into the ink that becomes a magical item. And so if you choose to uh, basically get rid of it, you don't lose the tattoo. You just get this needle back, which I think would be kind of one of those things of it would be neat to maybe play a class that collected them or I'm a tattoo artist. And, and if you have the time, like a wizard preparing a spell book, you prepare these needles. You know, maybe you collect these resistance needles to fire when you're fighting the dragon or you're going to hell or whatever. And it's like, oh, yeah, I've got a, I've got a tool for that. And you just whip out your tattoo kit. It's just full of these magical needles. That's kind of interesting. Magical needles. Right. I thought I thought it was a cool way to do it. Um, just how it's like, why well, have this magical tattoo? Well, now what do you do with it? It's gone. Or, you know, uh, or how do you get rid of it as a guard? Or, 
you accidentally give it to your player how do you take it away you know i think those are all those little like things of like okay that was way too strong i'll get it back to him someday um you wake up in a jail cell and all your tattoos are gone or whatever so are there rules for mo tattoos uh no that's not a thing <laughs> all right fair enough <laughs> well thank you nolan we appreciate the update on the newest unearth arcana um nolan does a really good job of breaking those down for us so that is all i see for dungeons and dragons you guys seeing anything else okay well let's head over to onyx path then uh, the biggest news from onyx path this week is the cancellation of the kickstarter for legend lore uh, rich thomas sent out a message to backers i thought i would summarize it real quick but Honestly, it's pretty lengthy, and I'm not sure I can summarize it too much. I will say, you know, what what it's saying, and I have a link in the show notes, is that essentially with everything that's going on right now, you know, everybody on XPath understands money is not in the best situation for some people. So instead of trying to have a Kickstarter out there that they know is going to struggle to get get traction, although they were halfway funded with more than a month or right about a month ago, they felt like they probably would fund, but it's not. They not necessarily feeling great about it. So they wanted to go ahead and pause it and bring it back when times are a little bit better. So they did cancel the Kickstarter. Now, if you were a backer, you did, you should have anyway, received a link for the complete legend lore manuscript, which they kind of roll out through the Kickstarter. So I thought that was really nice of them. So now yeah. as a backer, I can go ahead and download the legend lore manuscript and we can take a look at it and potentially even run a one shot and see if it's something worth playing. Very cool. I liked I liked uh, the idea behind it. I hope it comes back uh, with a vengeance, especially after everybody's been hopefully cooped up in their house being safe. So there is some new content for playtest area for Scarlands, and as we do with UA, so we're going to send that over to Nolan because, especially now, because there are two classes of Ranger, and Nolan has been our biggest advocate for new stuff for Ranger, and Travis Leg has specifically said he wants to hear Nolan's thoughts on this. So. Nolan, it's all you. Let me get it pulled up just so I can do it justice here. Exactly. Um, I know that uh, I spent obviously more time looking at the Ranger stuff. It seemed like they came out with two classes, uh, a Huntmaster, which gets a, well, I'll say this here. Both of them seem to heavy or favor heavily the Beastmaster side of uh, the Ranger, kind of bringing back that animal companion. And I know for some people that is exactly what a Ranger should be. And for other people, it is more of the Aragon style or Aragon or whatever. They, uh, the, so the two that they gave us were both kind of based around uh, pets. Now, one of them is called a Huntmaster. And the neat thing that they get uh, is a, what they call a Moon Rage. And it is very much a, uh, a treated as a barbarian rage. The, it does have a limit there, which is kind of interesting. So uh, on one of the three nights of the full moon of Belsameth, you can enter a Moon Rage. And so you kind of, it would be kind of a, a neat role play idea or basically one of those things of like, well, guys, can we hold up before we storm this keep for like two days so I have my rage? So that that would be something that would be kind of neat. It would also bring in maybe knowing when the Celestial Lyman is in your game. So that could be something that could be a, a, a benefit or a hindrance. Um, what they do get to supplement that though, since they're not just a rage ranger, uh, they do get a wolf companion. And this wolf companion scales with you without being a Beastmaster. You had your proficiency bonus, so it's AC, attack rolls, and damage rolls, as well as any saving throw skills. So it is able to basically be a lifelong companion, which I think is kind of a, a thing that uh, with the old Beastmaster and stuff like that, they just didn't scale very well, and that was some of the complaints, and it would take some of your attacks. Um, so this thing kind of works works to the best of your ability on its initiative uh it speaks to you verbally um so again some days you have the rage if the rage isn't up to kind of give you that super well, super saiyan's a horrible term but that's kind of what it is uh you can turn around and also rely on this wolf pet um as a wolf master you you get bonuses to this thing you become such a, a close bond with your wolf companion that you train it i guess is how they're saying it to be you know either a little more dexterous dexterous uh, a little more intelligent and and so it, it starts to get smarter uh, eventually gaining the ability to telepathically speak with your uh, with your ranger and then some of the other stuff uh, that gets really neat as it gets up into the higher level the the 15th level one is uh, you start to summon 
wolves equal to your charisma modifier, a minimum of one. So now all of a sudden you're the the pack master or the alpha. Um, so that kind of further enhances maybe having a, a group of this, you know, bestial beastmaster style guy, and then also the rage on top of it. So that was the first one that was really neat. The second one is a, I can see a very delicate balancing act because we have a character and we fought horn sauce before. Um, and this one here is a horn sauce sentinel who now basically has a horn saw as a pet. Uh, yeah, a pet that can engage in combat with you. Yeah. Um, so they do have a little bit of, uh, I don't know how to, it, it grows with you, but it grows a little bit slower because it is more powerful right out of the gate. Um, horn saws are very temperamental. So I, I like the idea that it's kind of the long game there. So you'll start to eventually, uh, at seventh level, you get a particularly intelligent, but willful juvenile horn saw as a companion. Though, uh, even though it's your pet, uh, it is very mindful that this is not a mount. Sometimes the rarity, you can actually ride it. But for the most part, it is another adventure that fights side by side to you. It does obey your command, but you have to remember that it is also very much uh, its own creature as well. So that would be kind of a fun way to to play it and maybe have these two things that kind of the odd couple type action happening. And, and horn says are really interesting creatures in that, you know, we've kind of talked about them before in that they are these like furry unicorns with serrated horns. And if you look at their stats, these these are this is a, a pretty substantial uh, ally to have. Yeah, they have uh, great hit points. They're very quick. They're very violent. Um, so I think getting it a little bit later is about is, is probably right because um, you don't want, uh, hey, we're this group of four and the horn saw is just winning every encounter and everybody's like, well, why are we here? Why don't we just make horn saws? So I, I think they do a good job of giving that later to you. Uh, it does scale where at 11th level it gets multi-attack. It starts to um, attack more often. Um, 15th level, it becomes an adult and finally gets the full horn saw statistic package. Uh, and then <laughs> as Wounded Fury, when you have 35 hit points or fewer, you advantage on attack rolls. In addition, you deal an extra 2d6 with all your melee attacks. So that's kind of a cool thing of the closer to dead it gets, the uh, the more violent it is, which I think was a uh, a thing that we saw from the actual uh, monster itself. Yeah, that seems correct, yes. So it does have stats for Juvenile Hornsaw in there as well, so you kind of get an idea of what you're playing with through the, the at least the start of it. And, and the Juvenile Hornsaw, again, these are substantial allies. This is an AC of 14, which is natural armor, and 105 hit points. It's immune to poison. It's immune to being charmed, paralyzed, or, of course, poison. 60 feet of dark vision. And, I mean, some of the damage this thing does is, uh, let's say it's got the ability to charge. The juvenile horn saw moves at least 20 feet straight forward. Then it hits with a horn attack on the same turn. It deals an extra 5 uh, or 1d8 slashing damage. If the target is a creature, it must succeed on a DC 12 uh, strength saving throw or be knocked prone. Uh, multi-attacks it can do i mean like if you hit with everything and you just took the averages because let's see it says they make three three attacks one with its hooves one with its bite one with its horns i mean three attacks it's what 29 hit points so it's 10 12 and 7 so and that's at a juvenile yeah and at seventh level that it, you need something that's going to stick around because again we're starting to see that's kind of the the power curve of when you start to come into your own and, and you've got your, you know, you're getting those extra feats, you're getting the extra attacks and the extra spells. So I think it'd be a, a good level for it. It's kind of interesting. So overall, what are your thoughts on these two Ranger classes, Nolan? I, I like them. Um, I think, I think seeing the Ranger with the rage uh, option a few times uh, is a, is something that would be really fun to play. We've talked about uh, a couple times in multi-classing ranger and barbarian, just kind of as that natural predator, uh, hunter, gatherer that every now and slips into the feral side. And I think that kind of comes from, you know, Dritz taking on the hunter role back in the day. Uh, the wolf companion leveling with you, I like a lot. Again, that's just something that it, it would get old burying animal companions as often as you would need to without some sort of help from the DM. So I, I think it's good um, for me, a ranger. Uh, I I've never been much of a pet class, but uh, having a horn saw would make me want to like a pet. So very cool. 
Yeah, I, I think playing the uh, the Hornsaw Ranger would be a lot of fun. Can you imagine the poor DM that the whole group's like, we all want to be Hornsaw Rangers. I, I'm not going to DM that one. <laughs> <laughs> and then they also had a they had a couple new creatures as a part of their testing, dealing with some clockworks. I think they had a clockwork wasp. So that might be something that'll be fun to see coming forward out of the books. If we get kind of a, a robotic style addition to Scarred Lands. And then a few more magical items, um, a couple of more sea-based ones, an intelligent rope, which I thought was kind of fun, reminded me of Lord of the Rings. Uh, some newer... Uh, tattoos uh which one of them was a tar dragon tattoo after dealing with a tar dragon in uh vengeance of the shun that was kind of fun to see that that was an option for a tattoo so uh nothing too crazy just some more stuff to kind of add more flavor to areas um i know that we're dealing with uh you know some blood sea stuff coming out with this here so the intelligence rope on a boat would be super handy uh, i think one of the tattoos is like mark of the fish so we're starting to see some more things that maybe some pirates or seafaring adventurers might uh, covet or seek out. We did, speaking of pirates and seafaring stuff, we did just have the second release of Yugman's Guide to Gelspad. And I thought we'd kind of talk quickly about that, uh, let you guys know what it is, what is in there. And specifically, uh, because Nolan happened to mention seafaring stuff, this expansion, or this part of Yugman's, definitely deals with the Blood Sea. Have either of you had a chance? I know, Cody, you mentioned the Scrag. Why don't you tell us a little bit about the Scrag? So the Scrag are one of the two uh, races that they dropped in the new Gelsped. Um, the Scrag are, for better term or not, they're kind of like an aquatic troll, based on what I see. They're they're super tall, um, super heavy. Um, they have actually one of their racial traits is regeneration. Um, when they're submerged in water, they gain one hit point at the end of each one of their turns. In addition, if they have a limb or a body part that is severed, um, it will regenerate fully in 3d6 minutes, or if the severed limb is still there, they can uh, place it against the stump and it reattaches instantaneously. However, this ability, if they take fire, acid, or a fail a death save, the regeneration ability does not work until the end of, or does not function at the end of their turn. So it really I, say, I like their. Uh, I like they get plus two strength. I like that they get plus two con because uh, they are eight feet tall and upwards of four hundred pounds. Which, from the picture, it doesn't do it justice. It looks like a little goblin hunched over. Um, until you actually see that, you're like, oh, he's not a little goblin hunched over. So that was pretty cool. I like that they have advantage on uh, being uh, against being frightened because when you're eight feet tall and four hundred pounds, I imagine not a lot of stuff scares you. I want to echo what you said about the artwork there, because when I first read that, I was like, oh, cute, a little goblin with that's dragging his knuckles on the ground. And then I read about it, I'm like, oh, this is not a little goblin at all. And it, and it does look, the art looks very goblin. I was like, oh, wow, that's, they're adding like a, go, a goblinoid race. Okay. And I read into it and I'm like, whoa, 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 not a goblin, not even close. But I like the way that they did it because... You know, when you think of water and whatnot, like an eight foot tall, 400 pound creature on land might have some more difficulties if it's grown up, you know, in the water. So having them hunch over and kind of drag their knuckles when they walk really spoke to me and I guess physics. I, it's, I, think, I thought it was a neat creature. I love the, uh, the fact that they're amphibious and they can breathe water and air. Uh, but I don't know that this is going to be something that you're going to be able to play very well with a group of people, though. Well, especially from the sounds of one of the other people in the group is a Triton, because apparently the Tritons are uh, not kindly to them. But I think it depends on, again, some of the group. If you're playing a group of pirates, you know, it makes sense. It does say they tend towards more evil or neutral. Um, so, you know, I think it would be one of those things of, you know, I, I grew up on a boat I am one of these things, but I was raised by a captain or what, you know, they found me, they slaughtered my family. They couldn't kill the kid. I think you could find excuses for it, but yeah, you would have some difficulties to overcome of again, being an eight foot tall troll. Uh, you're going to have some issues and maybe work on some, uh, either go really strong or really horrible with your charisma because you might need it. Okay. So let's talk about the Tritons. Cody, you mentioned the Tritons as being an enemy of the Scrag. And this was one of the other races that was released in this edition of Yugmans. So the Tritons were created by Corian. Uh, and basically their intent, the intent was, is they are to rule, bring peace and law to the oceans of Skarn. 
Um, so these are sea-dwelling humanoids. It really struck me. Aquaman was like kind of the first thing that jumped to mind when I saw these. Uh, they are similar in, in appearance to humans, but they have a blue tone to their skin. They do have silvery blue scales in their lower bodies. The hair is often dark blue, teal, or even sky blue. And they also have gills. So these are creatures that can breathe in the water and on air. Typically, when they adventure, they don't go too far from water, but they can survive outside of water if needs be. Uh, there is a Triton Empire under the sea that is strongly de devoted to Corian, And then there's another group of Tritons called the Blood-Tainted Tritons. Now, something we haven't really talked a whole lot about with Scarred Lands is the fact that there is a Blood Sea. We've mentioned it a couple times, and the Blood Sea is where... The Titan Cardoom's heart is during when he was killed, his heart was cast into the to the sea and it is just continuously pumping blood and it has made this whole part of that sea blood red and it has corrupted all the things that live in there. So you have blood tainted Tritons who tend to have larger eyes. Uh, they tend to be darker in color. If I remember correctly, they take on a reddish hue to their skin color. Um, and they also, their fingers are elongated and they have deadly looking claws on their fingers. So you can definitely tell the difference between the two. Now there is, keep in mind, there is trade between the different Tritons. So clear water Tritons will trade with the blood tainted Tritons, but they will not go into the blood sea because they have seen what has happened. So it is, uh, you know, a, a interesting relationship between although they're the same race you know the changes that has happened some of the things that tritons get is they do get a, a plus one increase to their strength and constitution uh, age-wise tritons are considered mature in their mid-teens and can live for almost two centuries let's see size they are about five feet tall of medium build walking speed is 30 feet with a swim speed of 30 feet and again they are amphibious so just an, another race for you to check out in this edition of Yugman's. We did have some new classes, but I feel like if we spend too much time, then there's nothing for you to go and check out when you buy it. So we just wanted to touch on those races real fast. Um, there's some new classes, some new backgrounds, and this really does focus on the Blood Sea. So you might even consider uh, picking up, I think it's called Crimson Sea Adventures in the Blood Sea or something like that. I can't remember what it's called, but it's a fantastic book about the Blood Sea. It would be a great a book to have in addition to uh, this party Yuckman's. I did take a minute to look through the Blood Sea Alchemy thing too, and it's definitely worth checking out for people that pick this up. It's very interesting. Um, so let's let's see other things with Onyx Path. I did see that the Chicago by Night folios are out for approval for print on demand, which is exciting because that means I can get those and add that to my uh, Vampire the Masquerade collection. And then I also saw that they come from beneath the sea is in indexing, which means it's getting ready to be printed. So news about both is very exciting. Although with everything that's going on in the world, even if they are ready to ship, it might be a little bit. And speaking of delays in shipping, Modiphius recently announced that they are suspending the shipping of all physical products until May. This, of course, is being done in response to COVID-19 pandemic sweeping the world. I don't see any new announcements from Modifiates on new products currently, but I did notice that Dishonored, which is an, uh, an RPG that we spoke about a couple weeks ago, I didn't realize it was so close to being released because it was in pre-order at the time, but the they have released the PDF format on Drive-Thru RPG. And Nolan, you had kind of told us a little bit about Dishonored. Do you mind doing that again real quick? So I, for me, uh, when I first heard about it, I didn't remember it, but it was an Xbox, I believe, originally uh, game and then the Xbox 360. It is, uh, it's kind of a, a steampunk style world. Uh, dealing with uh, the the main game deals with a, a guy that was kind of a, an elite guard slash assassin um, and playing through his story. It is a single player kind of RPG. Um, so it looks like it was uh, worked on or in collaboration with Dishonored's co-creator. Um, so it really brings in a lot of that uh, original idea um, from a, a prevalent source. Um trying to see what it is so it looks like uh basically you'll be playing in the streets of the town that it is it's called dunwall uh and just kind of jumping around the aisles in that area i don't you know i, I didn't get a chance to look at a lot of it other than it 
it looks like a huge book. I mean, 300 pages to hop into something that was, you know, I, I spent multiple hours playing the game, but you know, I don't know. I, <laughs> it, it was such a good game. It was such a fun faction uh, that the, it was one of the first games that I ever played where the world took on its own AI based upon your actions. Um, and I'm hoping that stuff carried over to it. Uh, but we've always, we've, we've been talking about, you know, maybe a, a cyberpunk game or a, uh, you know, a steampunk game or kind of blending this, this would be a good one here with kind of a blend of, you know, the occult and, and, and steampunk and assassins and intrigue. Uh, I'm excited for it. And I usually don't get excited for anything that's not medieval based elves, Tolkien fantasy. Cody, have you, did you mess with Dishonored when it was a video game at all? I did play it a little bit, but not a whole lot. I, I did enjoy it as well. It was it was super big too. Yeah, this is just not a game that I played. Of course, I went through a long spat where I wasn't playing any video games at all, which is weird, but whatever. So yeah, Dishonored has been released in PDF format. It is on Drive Through RPG. Do remember if you click that link at the top of our page, it is our affiliate link, and whatever you purchase there, we get a very small kickback, and it helps us to purchase things like Yugmans and stuff to talk about on our show. So you can support us just by clicking that link and buying the game that you want to get, and help us out in the interim. I was gonna say, I guess uh, the uh, what they officially called. Uh, the the way the world worked was that they used the chaos system. And so that basically tracks the world system. So if there's, you know, anarchy and murder in the streets, then the world's in more chaos. Uh, and all that was directly tied to the player's actions. So that's, that's the thing that I hope they carried over and, and we'll be checking out because I do like that idea of uh, having consequences for the world of like, wow, there's a lot more guards than usual. And it's like, yeah, no kidding. In that bar fight last night, you broke that guy's neck. Of course, they're a little on edge. You're a murderer. Like, you know, be smarter next time. So that's really interesting. Actually, that's kind of what they've done with, uh, and we're speaking about Modifia, so it's appropriate. That's kind of what they did for Fall of London in that, as you as the players progress through the adventure if they do certain things it does cause other things to happen and of course it's you know you're supposed to do it as a storyteller so the players may not recognize at first what's going on but yeah it absolutely all their actions have consequences that affect them later that's cool that needs to happen more often i like that idea and it's it's uh i don't know i know like they went really detailed into like the higher the chaos, the more people were, you know, like indoors, uh, the rat population in the game would go up. Uh, so just those little type of uh, things that you would see in the game, like, geez, this place is a mess. Well, it's, yeah, because you made it a mess because of your actions. So I don't know. I, I think it's a cool thing. And I, I could see adding that to any world you play in of almost like, a, oh, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll remember that for later or. Uh, wow, you guys really went all ham on uh, not taking that, you know, little thug to justice and you killed him. Uh, you know, his uncle's in the member of the Yakuza. That's going to come back to haunt you type thing. You know, I'll, I'll save that note for later of, yeah, you remember that guy? Nobody would remember that guy, but, you know, you killed his brother. So good job. Causality is always good. Yep, I, I think it's a, a neat thing. So I'm, I'm all for it. I, again, I hadn't played Dis, Dishonored, but the i mean just the artwork on the cover is enough to make me pause and take a look at it it was it was it's a really neat world and it does have that you know some of the i think it has a lot of the things that you would like uh just with that steampunk with the, a little bit of the occult i mean it just kind of plays in that time period of things that you're interested in so. let's talk about kickstarter real quick because i wanted to take a minute um a couple about a, maybe a month ago now i had a uh, david barentine and uh zach goins i'm sorry david barentine and zach goins uh they had a DD adventure that that was a kind of a mega campaign called knights of the shadow realm that david had written uh did all the artwork for was doing all the layout for it's completely his world and zach was helping him get it to kickstarter and they did launch on kickstarter and very quickly fully funded so i just wanted to take a minute to give a shout out to both of them say congratulations on the funding of their kickstarter it is something that i am planning to back i think it'd be a really neat adventure to run I, uh, the what i've read through it, it looks really good Good for them. Congrats, guys. Yeah, congrats. Not an easy task. No, not at all. Another Kickstarter I wanted to mention, and I can't remember if this is still live or not. I know it was getting close to finish, is the board slash card game for Vampire the Masquerade Vendetta. This is an asymmetrical competitive card game of strategy, bluff, and deduction designed by renowned game designers Charlie Cleveland of Subnautica and Bruno Feduti. Uh, Fe Fe 
uh, I'm going to butcher that. I'm sorry, Bruno. Uh, from Citadels, it's for three to five players. Will take. It says three to five players will take control of one of the scheming vampires and fight at several locations to win the support of influential allies and ultimately challenge for the throne of Chicago. Look out, Prince Jackson. Uh, you can check out that Kickstarter with the link in the show notes. Now, I, I wasn't too excited about this because, frankly, if I'm going to play a card game for Vampire the Masquerade, I'm going to play Vampire the Eternal Struggle. But I could see where this would be nice in that it's just a complete game and you can sit down and play. Now, I have to wonder, though, if there's going to be expansions to build upon the game because otherwise it's just going to get boring playing the same cards over and over. So I didn't know if either of you had seen that one or not. I had not, but it's also not really in the wheelhouse of things I search for. That's true. I did did see it, um, but yeah, like you said, hopefully there's some growth with it. Our topic of the night, as you know, we have been dealing with Scarlands all month, and as we wrap up here for the month of March, and we get ready to take a look at April, we still have another subject to broach, and that is some of the subclasses in Scarlands. Now, this has kind of been a Scarlands episode with the uh, playtest stuff and Yugmans, but there's just been stuff coming out. Oh, and I forgot to mention. Going back here, sorry, but still on the Scarlands topic. You know, we've been playing through Vengeance of the Shunned, which has been it was the mega campaign that they created, at, which was released in individual pieces. And we've made the comment multiple times that we wish it would be printed in a book. Well, we're just going to say it's because of us that they listened. It's not because of us, whatever. Um, they did release a POD of Vengeance of the Shun, so you can get the entire adventure in one complete book, and that is available on RPG. I can't recommend it enough. It's It's been a very fun story, and having it all in one place is even better. So I wanted to make sure we mentioned that. And and now <laughs> let's talk about some of the subclasses that we have in Scarlands. Now, well, these are straight out of the player's guide. This is not uh, from playtest stuff or anything like that. This is straight out of the player's guide. This is what you would get when you check out the player's guide. Uh, Nolan, why don't you kick us off, grab a subclass and tell us about it. I think, and, and the nice thing about I. Th- a lot of the subclasses is I don't feel like they're very generic. So I, I feel like a lot of them are like, oh, you know, this is a, not necessarily a, just a, a straight fighter that could be plug and played everywhere. What they've done is create things that are all very thematic to regions or races that could be that, which I, th- I, I think helps with the character creation. Uh, not saying it's the right way to do it or the better way to do it because it does actually limit your ability to play some of these things. You know, with the Barbarian, they have two on there. Uh, one of them is kind of your typical, you know, uh, northern barbarian, uh, Might of the Hurar, which is kind of their what bear guardian of uh, the northern area. Um, but what they did on there was they added a path of like the tail fighter. And so path of the tail fighter is exactly what it is. It's a restricted to Asathi or Slytherin classes that have tails and they become proficient with wielding a weapon with their tail or doing damage with it. And then just adding it to that all around berserker style, all of a sudden I have uh, two attacks and then I slap you with my tail for some extra damage. Uh, so I, I like some of that stuff there of adding in the, a very specific racial style uh subclass that not open to everybody but this one of those things of like oh you're another barbarian not just another barbarian wow who kicked me nobody kicked you i slapped you with my tail don't be insulting <laughs> that's awesome which of those two were ones that was uh maybe it's obvious uh that you preferred over the other of that group you know what I, as far as that one there uh the, my favorite one that they came out with was the one that actually uh, Shuri had played. And there's a third one, and it's Path of the War Shaman. And it is a rage caster, which is kind of fun because it's it's so exclusive. Of they have a, It's almost like an arcane trickster or an eldritch knight. Um, and in doing so, they give them a limited selection of spells, which I really like. But the, the big thing about them being a shaman is eventually they can, when they rage, they can start sharing that rage with people in their party. So it's it, it's a very tribal version of inspiration in a way, uh, just working people into a frenzy. And I could see like a, a war shaman barbarian frontline fighting with a, you know, with a fighter and a monk or something like that. And all of a sudden that encounter just became super deadly for whoever decided to step in front of their way. So that was technically my favorite one out of them. How about you, Cody? Which one did you want to talk about? Well, you know, <laughs> the the uh, path the tail was on there for me. Um, I remember uh, the three five feet prehensile tail. So it's always fun when you get to 
you know, play that. Um, but I actually was looking at Knife Fighter uh, in Rogue. And the reason that I was drawn to it, I was like, oh, Knife Fighter, that's interesting. Let's look at it and take a look at it. And it definitely, like Nolan said, kind of has that um, grittier focused um, drive to it. Is it as throughout the whole thing, all of your your subclass skills that you get kind of limit you to a particular weapon. So that's nice to, I guess, kind of see in the sense that, you know, everybody, like a lot of people, as they play a character, they're like, oh, well, what weapon do I have that does the most damage? Uh, I'm a rogue uh, rapier, right? 1d8. So it's, it's nice to see somebody, you know, oh, all of my abilities trigger only if I'm holding a knife or uh, a round knife, I believe is what it was. Yeah. A dagger or a round knife. So, yeah, it kind of pushes it back and it gives them that uh, kind of like there's the option to use just one knife and get a bonus. Or if you do a wield, uh, you get your proficiency on your offhand instead of bonus uh, to your damage on your single so you just kind of had that like really gritty tavern dude with a knife feel to me tag on that one there too so what they with that knife fighter what they did was uh if you like you said if they have one they get the dueling fighting style for free and if you're dual wielding you get the two weapon fighting files or uh, fighting style for free but since they aren't exclusive to each other in naming you could do this with a you know, a fighter and double dip on the dueling or so all of a sudden or the two up and fighting. So now all of a sudden it's like, well, I have two knives. My main hand does 1d4 plus, you know, five. And now my offhand does 1d4 plus 10. So your bonus attack action could actually be your hardest hitting ability, which I thought added some some really neat things. That was a, that's, that's a great one. Um, and I would almost go further and just give it both of them. Uh, while you're wielding a dagger, you get plus two to bonus. If it's in your offhand, you get plus 10. So that way, all of a sudden, you're hitting for like plus seven with a dagger. And all of a sudden, you've got this kind of sharpshooter thing of like, wow, that really hurt. I think he punctured a lung. So. Right. And I, I did enjoy their ability to give themselves its advantage through their bonus attack with, uh, what was it? Faint something. Flawless faint. So they're so guiled that they can uh, use a charisma performance check against the wisdom insight check. And if they succeed, they gain advantage on the next attack that they would make on that turn. So uh, that was kind oh. of a cool flair too. And I, I will say on that one too, again, because it was one of my favorite ones, uh, their their high level ability, all of a sudden their daggers start hindering uh, with through attacks. And it almost felt like a little bit of like the monk key where you could start taking away reactions or, uh, you know, hamstringing them or even starting to bleed them or cut them in the eyes and blind them. And it gave such a fun level of this. This guy has become such a master that he like, you know, he cuts a nick above your forehead. So the blood runs into your eyes and now you're blinded until you can get the blood out of your face. And I was like, that's all of a sudden you've got this nuance to a rogue that can become very, well, is somebody close enough? I sneak attack. Oh, okay. Instead, I just do one d four. Let me know when there's a lock to pick. So it it added some complexity to it that I was like, holy cow, this would be a lot of fun. Yeah, yep. So I wanted to talk a little bit about the Knight of the Oak, restricted to elves only. Um, so don't don't think that you're going to play a, a different race and pick up Knight of the Oak. So the the whole point of this is that you know, elves. In this case, what is it? The Ganges and Elvis. This is, fills the very specific role within Ganges Elven culture. Uh, Nolan, in in our game, is what what type of elf are you playing? Uh, that would be the same one. That's that's what I thought, and that's kind of similar to Sylvan elves in in D anD D. This because they're they're very forestry uh, type, isn't that correct? Yeah, in this world they are. Yeah, I don't know if there is necessarily a high elf. Um, I think there's just the two, so it it, it would be a blend between. I think this subclass brings in the uh, the wood elf part of it. Uh, absolutely. Um, one of the first things they do when you choose this archetype at third level, you get the remarkable agility. Uh, so it says you gain remarkable agility from your many hours of practicing climbing, leaping, and balancing along tree limbs. And you can add your proficiency bonus rounded up, or I'm sorry, half your proficiency bonus rounded up to any strength or dexterity checks that you make that doesn't already use your proficiency bonus. Uh, when you make a running long jump, the distance you can cover increases by a number of feet equal to your strength modifier. So that's, I mean, especially if you're playing a lightweight creature like an elf, that's pretty significant to be able to leap like that. It, it reminds me a lot of uh, 
when they're hunting in the Hobbit series of the elves, you see them just kind of going through the woods and all of a sudden next thing you know, you're like, you know, like that, a pack of elves moving through the trees would be just terrifying. That's what I was thinking too. When they were fighting the spiders uh, and they just leapt the way they did, or even when they were going after the orcs, that's exactly what I was thinking. Also at third level, you gain the ability. It's a special magical ritual to cover yourself in light armor made of living wood. As an action, you can conjure wooden armor for yourself that remains until you use another action to dismiss it. You are covered in the living armor and your base AC is 13 plus your dexterity modifier. And as an elf, of course, you already got a bonus to your dexterity. So you can have a pretty significant ac at third level with this yeah it's uh basically some uh plus one leather or plus one studded leather for free mm-hmm. so i thought that was pretty interesting uh seventh level you you learn a special magical ritual to summon a living weapon as an action you conjure a javelin longbow quarterstaff shortbow or spear of living wood that functions as a normal weapon of its type you may have only one living weapon at a time, and it withers away to a dry twig one minute after it leaves your hand. As long as you hold it, your living weapon is treated as magical. In addition, as a bonus action, you can conjure as many arrows as you can fire in a single turn. These arrows last for only one round and are magic weapons. So, I mean, it's not giving you a plus or anything like that, but it does say you now have a magic weapon at your you know, beck and call at any time. I like that they bond with the woods. Like, I think that's just a cool thing. I like the, the magical art. Like, they live with the land. Like, and I think you've mentioned it a lot when it comes to the world is very much alive. Um, sometimes it's just influencing in a negative way. Um, but in this one here, there is a, a harmony with its defenders of working with the land in a, a completely different way and adding magic to it is really neat there yeah i was gonna mention the unfailing because they when i was reading through they have a very interesting flair to them as well well tell us about it well so one of their uh sorry (laughs) their uh, bodyguards or or trace back to bodyguards for necromancers from what i remember yep high-ranking hollow fost necromancers Um, So their abilities all kind of fall around bodyguard type things wherein which they put themselves in the line of fire and are just like feed somewhat off of this like necromantic almost type magic where they almost seem undying. And in their first ability, uh, Harm's Way, um, just kind of was interesting to me where... um, uh, you, When you choose this archetype at third level, you may place yourself in harm's way to protect an ally or a ward. When a friendly, willing creature within five feet of you is attacked, you can use your reaction to switch places with that creature and become the target of the attack instead. Uh, you must be able to see the target and the attacker of the target. So it, it was just one of those, like, really bodyguard, like, huge st- to me, it's like that stoic, almost lifeless-eyed person that just does their job to a like a crazy level. And then you mentioned Deathless. Um, they also get uh, Fortitude. They get re- Resistance to Necromantic Magic. And uh, whenever they roll Initiative, uh, if they have no temporary hit points, they gain temporary hit points equal to their fighter level. And continuing down, I believe... You put uh, yeah, undying. So at 18th level, they you possess an unnatural vigor akin to that of the undead. At the start of each of your turns, you gain temporary hit points equal to five plus your constitution modifier, um, unless you have zero hit points at that time. So it has that like almost undying feel to it, which I thought was really interesting. But yeah, that's that was a really uh, like interesting one for me. However, both still really cool fighter subclasses. Yes, they are very cool fighter subclasses. I do like the Knight of the Oak. I think that as a, I, I, that's something I would play. I think anytime you can add, well, I think that's a tough thing. Anytime you can add magic into a non-magical class, uh, it gives you a little, even if it's fluff and flare and, you know, something as trivial as summoning your own bow from the woods. I mean, that's like, that's a, you can really get in the RP around it. You can really define that character when you're making it of like this is my path this is what i am i'm a woodland protector all right 
part of who I am is made. Now I just got to figure out some of the little details of why I'm traveling or what I'm protecting. And it's kind of like you, know, you talk about adding magic to a class that doesn't have a lot of magic. And I know we see that sometimes with Monk where you can do stuff with magic. But one of the things I liked about Monk in Scarlands was the Way of Mercy, which is a healing monk. I thought this was really interesting in that you now have a monk who is a pacifist who is preferring to placate, disarm, or perhaps subdue opponents seeking physical confrontation rather than harm or kill them. So this, again, this is a healing monk. It's called the Way of Mercy. Uh, so there, on Gelsbad, there are two orders of monks in particular who follow this tradition. The more common of the two is the Holy Order of the Dawn Spear. For the Dawn Spear adepts, the warmth and grace of the first angel Madriel, the Redeemer, is a path toward personal perfection. Wielding their goddess's favored weapon, the spear, they wander the scarred lands, defending those who cannot defend themselves and restoring the sick and wounded to health. It is through this self, uh, this selflessness that they feel that Madriel will grant them true enlightenment. There's also the way, um, the second group that follows the way of mercy is the order of the scarred hand. Uh, and this says, after the devastation of the Titans, where many among both the divine races and the Titan spawn had tired of constant warfare, uh, a particular set of redeemed, which are the, those people, uh, those Titan spawns who have forsaken or not forsaken, but have said, okay, we're done. We don't want to fight anymore. We're, we're, we're done. Um, whose members worshiper, the gentler Titans like Denev, Golfian, and Mesos, dedicate itself to repairing the harm done by the war. Today, adherents of the Order of the Scarred Hands use their unique abilities to undo the harm wrought by the Titans and the Titans' war. So some of the things that they get is um, they get the ability to cast healing spells. You, to cast any of these healing spells, you don't need any of the standards. Or, I'm sorry, it follows the standard spellcasting rules with Wisdom as your modifier, but you don't need to provide any of the material or verbal uh, components. You can just do it. And then at fifth level in this class, you can spend your key. You can spend additional key points to increase increase the level of your healing. So you use healing by spending key points, and then you can increase the level of your healing by adding more key points at fifth level. The maximum number of key points you can spend to cast a, a spell this way, including its base cost plus additional key points, is determined by your monk's level. So I thought it was really interesting to have this type of character. You know, typically we th I think of monks as these fighting type aspects, and now we have a path or a, 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 a pacifist a pacifist monk who is you know dedicating themselves to healing it'd be a really interesting person to have in a party yeah i like the uh, especially as fast as you can get key points back with short rests um you know they're not the biggest of heals but i think having maybe a volume of them would be kind of I, I need to see it in action i like the play style of it i think it's a, a great concept and anytime you can add more healers to the game even if it is just an off heal to pop the cleric back up uh, if they go down then i think it's a, a good opportunity to at least toe tip into being a healer while still getting to be a martial class so you still have the ability to do damage but then heal if you needed to um so i thought that was really really interesting at third level you gain you can spend two key points to cast cure wounds gentle repose or lesser restoration additionally you learn the sphere uh spare the dying cantrip at sixth level you can manipulate your enemy's key whenever you hit a creature with one of the attacks granted by your fury of blows you can impose uh some of the following let's see it is must succeed in a constitution saving throw or be knocked prone must succeed in a strength saving throw if it fails you can push it 15 feet away or they cannot take reactions until the end of your next turn uh, and then, of course, it scales up from there. We haven't talked a whole lot about magic using classes, seeing as I botched the whole druid thing. It was actually a fighter. Nolan, why don't you tell us a little bit of ma about a magic subclass? Well, I'll touch on, uh, I guess, two of them quickly since I can ramble about them forever. But uh, Sorcerer was one of them. Uh, part of it was kind of a... a it really leans to the tone of what the world is. Yeah, there are the opportunity to bring in the other old D&D PHP ones, um, but they have two sorcerer classes. One deals with elementals, uh, which is fairly you know uh, common around Galesped. Um, the other one that I thought was really neat was uh, dealing with uh, titans and getting their gifts. And so we see a lot with you know dragon sorcerer and how that influences either the dragon or a shadow sorcerer. You know we're, we're familiar with that now seeing one that you know everything about this guy is basically uh, an infect of this corruption that we see having the world this person now has this kind of bane and 
what they call gifts from these titans that you'd have to deal with and i think that would lend to a really fun rp player of like it's not it's not ever your fault that there's titan blood coursing through you you didn't choose it and why they've chosen you or why it's awakened within you whether you choose to you know make lemonade out of lemons or if you treat it as a curse or you know i think that would be a fun way to play a class of just given the world of why you are kind of the you are a part of the scar on the land so i thought that was really neat um and then the warlock subclass uh they had two of them that i really enjoyed uh and they were dealing with stuff that we haven't really seen uh one of them was dealing with genies which i thought was uh uh an interesting take on it you know usually we're dealing with these big evil creatures or these you know uh, this dark elder old one or an evil weapon and all of a sudden we have this genie and you take on kind of depending on where the gen is from uh take on that kind of that's your that's your pact um they also have a uh, pact of blood and pact of the sea so i thought it gave a lot more options to the warlock to again this world is very much alive it's very much doing its thing and creating these bonds or this thing to survive i i feel warlock kind of gets it like oh you sold your soul to the devil type uh feel to it all the time well it's because it's a civilized world in water team here it's very much the wild west and it's like I'm just trying to live. I, uh, you know, I gave a little bit of something to gain a lot so I can see tomorrow. And I think everybody in Galspet almost could, could understand that, uh, that, that reaction of, well, yeah, you, you know, very easy to die in this world or fall into a sink pit or get gobbled up by a droplet of blood or strangled by a tendon or some of the, the most silliest things as walking across the field and having it put you to a 5,000 year sleep, you know, it happens on a daily basis if you decide to leave your comfort of the city walls. So I think those packs would bring in a lot more to the less frowned upon, less cared about and more exploratory of having a, all of a sudden an air gen show up and be like, I've been looking for you. What have you been doing? I'd be like, Oh yeah, no, it's my patron. It's where I get my power. You made a pact with a genie. I'm like, yeah, no, he rubbed my lamp, whatever, you know, Did you rub my lamp. Did you bring me here? I think that would be. Oh God! I, I think it would be a lot of fun. Uh, and again, it, it's another way for Warlock to get away from being this, you know, frowned upon evil abomination to just being another caster. That again, I didn't make a deal with a god. I made a deal with a lesser elemental to get out of a situation. But in the end, I got to see tomorrow, and everybody can understand that. So, of course, there is a ton of subclasses in this book, and we could, like we we talked about earlier, we could probably spend an hour and a half to two hours going over every single one of them. And that's really not the point. We really just kind of want to give you an introduction into this. Uh, is there any other subclasses that either of you would like to talk about? I was going to say for a, a teaser, one thing that they have that uh, normal wizards doesn't have is uh, in this book, they attempted to do prestigious classes. And for people that played 3.5, you knew that there was kind of a, you dab a little bit of cleric, you dabble a little bit of monk, and once you have enough skill points, you get to become a sacred fist. And that's where your subclass became in you know, in fifth edition. They didn't like that. They felt like it got too convoluted. So you get your subclass at three. And this year they they brought it back, and that's kind of a neat section. We haven't had a chance to play with it uh, because it is so much more high end. Um, but there is there's some really cool, you know, spell bows and dealing with uh, druids that deal with incarnations of past selves which I think is the ultimate, you know, going back to earth and then being reborn. Um, so all of a sudden they start to learn new wild shapes based upon what they knew 200 years ago. I, I thought that was really cool. The, uh, there's an adamant champion, which is kind of a, the whole path around basically a subclass built into getting your noble character, the Holy Avenger. Um, but it's through a five, six level subclass where you become one with this weapon that was a gift from your God. So just a, another don't, don't neat take that I wish. No one. Yeah, I, and, and Runecaster's tattoo adepts. So I, I think that's something that I was really excited for because I—that's what I grew up knowing. I see that now that you know, after playing it for a few years, it's not necessary because you get it so much earlier. But I, I still like that idea of that's kind of a that playing an Adam and champion. You know, you spent your whole life as maybe a a, a path of mercy monk that's good with a sword. And all of a sudden, you get um, you know a message from Hermes showing up saying, "Hey, uh, here's this blade. Uh, you know, 
so-and-so took notice. Uh, I've got a mission for you. And all of a sudden you take this path and it, you know, you can use those things to, uh, gosh, when you, whenever you play an RPG these days, you know, you have your companions or your followers or people you adventure with, they always have side quests and they've got their personal craft that you got to go deal with or love to go deal with. Like I do, this feels like one of those things of like, you know, so-and-so entered into the archery contest and won. And guess what? This legendary spellbow saw that you got three bullseyes. He wants to train you. Uh, it's going to take some time, but are you interested? And I think that could create awesome stories for people. So that was another thing that was just really, really cool about the book that I was, I was probably the most excited for when I first saw it. Cody. Yeah, they definitely lend that extra special feel to them. Like, you know, it's kind of one of those things where everybody can be a rogue and everybody can be a knife fighter, so to speak. But as you trickle down into those special, those prestigious specializations, there's just there's something more to it. So I can totally understand that, Nolan. That is all I have uh, when it comes to subclasses. Again, I don't want to go super, super deep because at the end of the day, we want you to buy the book and try it out. Oh, and, and this is mostly just to kind of wet your toes a little bit in Scarlands, which is what we've tried to do all month long. So unless either of you have something else you want to talk about. Well, I would real quick, I would say that subclasses in Scarlands, I think one of the really nice things about Scarlands is Scarlands is very like it's a very rich in what it's written for you and it's not a multiverse so to speak so it lets a lot of those subclasses specialize and feel more connected to places like nolan mentioned earlier i could agree with that especially i mean like you said it is not it's not the a multiverse it is just one world and it does yeah allows you that connection and in, in, like we saw with with some of these subclasses a very deep connection not only to your deities but to the land itself so i yeah on that i would just say that these subclasses definitely feel like they have a little bit more life breathed into them just because they're able to kind of like focus in on this world and it's it's really nice to see so that's pretty much where i was going with it perfect well guys unless you have something else we've come to that point of the show where if people would like to get a hold of you this is how they can do it so nolan how can people get a hold of you i am on twitter at n lemires and cody i am on twitter at alpha lcd and of course i'm patrick and you can find me at most of the social medias at 307 rpg and real quick i just want to give a again i know we do this often but i i, I cannot stress enough how much we appreciate our patreon supporters especially in these trying times right now the fact that you continue to support us and and choose to send your money our way is just incredibly appreciated uh we do intend to get nolan his arm for his uh boom arm for his microphone this oh shit we should have it by the end of next week so that'll give us all our microphones off the table which is adding to the quality of our show so thank you so much everybody yeah thank you and gals and people guys and gals and people with that we have come to the end of our show so thanks for listening folks we will see you next week as we kick off our month of critical role which we'll be looking at the talderai source book for critical role so join us next time thanks everybody bye bye